Genesis 16. Now, early on in the life of Abram, we've been following him since God called him. Early on, he made some mistakes. He delayed to come to the promised land. He brought Lot with him, which he wasn't supposed to do. He went to Egypt. He lied about his wife, said she was his sister. He exposed her to humiliation and danger when Pharaoh brought her into his house. But in the recent chapters, things have been looking up for Abram. He returned to the promised land. He rebuilt the altar of the Lord. He began to worship and call on the name of the Lord. God gave him great victory in that battle with Lot. We saw in last chapter, God made a covenant with Abram. He saw his faith and counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's been doing better. And I have found, and I'm sure you have too, when we overcome the external obstacles in our life, now all the things that are coming at us, and we get some victory there. The next thing that the devil tries to do is pivot and rise up attacks from inside, from within your own family or from within your own heart. Spiritual warfare is the hardest when it involves your family. I heard it put this way, that we get all revved up for spiritual warfare. We get our armor on, we draw our sword, we say, come at me, devil, and then the devil punches our wife in the face. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on? Like Job chapter 2 where Job loses his stuff, he loses his house, he loses his kids, he loses his health, and then his wife says, why don't you just curse God and commit suicide? That's an, all the external stuff was hard enough, but now he's facing an internal struggle, and it's very similar here. I believe you could say this is Abram's greatest failure, and we are still feeling the repercussions of that today. And it all came at the inducement of his wife, Sarai, who we haven't heard a lot about up to this point. And it all sprung from their impatience with God and his promises. God does not operate on our timetable, does he? And God's priorities are not always our priorities. And if we grow impatient and frantic, we can resort to carnal, fleshly, human means to accomplish what we call spiritual goals. But it's a formula that never works. It doesn't matter how much agreement and unanimity there is in the group, if we're doing it our way instead of God's way, it doesn't matter how logical it seems, it's a problem. Galatians 3 verse 3, Paul put it this way to the Galatians. Are you so foolish? What's that modern translation? You can put that, are you really that dumb? Having begun by the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect by the flesh? This amazing thing that God started with the cross and with the Holy Spirit you're going to complete that yourself? Don't worry, God, I'll finish it from here. Are you so foolish? I think this story is incredibly relevant for us because we are Christians also waiting for the fulfillment of a promise from the Lord. We're waiting for Jesus to return. And maybe God has given you personal promises in your life. He does that. Maybe there's something that's in Scripture that you haven't seen in your life, but you're waiting for it. We can be tempted to help, to help the Lord. You ever have your kids, when they're little, try to help around the house? Dad, I helped paint the living room. Dad, I helped mow the lawn. Dad, I helped cut my little sister's hair. We should avoid trying to help the Lord. But at the same time, what's really cool about this passage is, while there is an incredible rebuke that Abram and Sarai needed at the beginning, and that we are going to receive too, when you come to the end, you see that the Lord is the one who sees us and who gets us and he's patient and compassionate with us. Even when we are not compassionate to those that we should be compassionate to or when somebody has not been compassionate to us. So let's get into this passage. It's a very important one for us to know. All of these here really are, but Abram's greatest mistake. Let's read these first three verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, that might startle you to read that. And hey, that's a good thing. There are certain things that should startle us. You did what? And it's important for us to learn a lesson that I think we know, but 
is important to remember. Just because the Bible records one of the characters doing something does not mean that God approves of what they're doing. Amen? Well, it's in the Bible. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible you do not want to imitate. And this is one of those things, and we're going to see. It's not going to so much address it to Abram in this chapter, but it will soon. Up till now, we've seen God solidify the promises he's made to Abram. He made several. Number one, he promised to bless Abram. And we've already seen, Abram is a rich man now. He's won that battle and won all that spoil from Sodom, and he just gave it away. He didn't even need it. The Lord had blessed him. We've seen God solidify the promise of the land. Up till now, this was Abram's stress. I don't have anyone to inherit this land, and God gave him the covenant of promise. So we've dealt with the promise of blessing in Abram's mind. We've dealt with the promise of land in Abram's mind. The rest of the story of Abram is going to be about God confirming the promise of a child in his life. Now, you remember Sarai, Abram's wife. She has not yet spoken in the book of Genesis, and the first words we hear out of her mouth are not exactly the kind of thing you want to hear a woman of God say. We know from verse 16 of this chapter that Abram was 86 when he had a son by Hagar. And Sarai was 10 years younger than him. So when this episode began, she's probably about 75 years old. And they're waiting for a child. Now, remember, the ages of the day were longer, but they weren't drastically longer than they were now. And remember that when Sarai was in Egypt, although she was probably in her 60s, she was beautiful enough to be taken by Pharaoh into his harem. But this has been 10 years. She's 75 now. This is too old for any woman to have children, even back then. They've been waiting for a child for 10 years. God had promised them a child, that I'm going to make you the father of many nations, Abraham. So, not only is she frustrated with God, do you see that? God has prohibited me from bearing children. She puts the blame on God. Always a bad thing to do. But she's also not just frustrated that God's not keeping his word. This is a tragedy. Even to this day, it is a tragedy for couples that want children who cannot have them. And back then, it was even more so because a, a woman's primary duty in her family was to bear children. And this was how they valued and graded each other. It wasn't exactly a great way to do things, but that's the way it was. So not only that, she's supposed to be the mother of promise, the one to carry the promise of the Messiah. And every year it got more and more difficult. So Sarai goes to Abram on her own, and she demands, says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take my servant Hagar. You're going to father a child with her. And it says that I may obtain children in verse 2, but the Hebrew there is bana, that I may be built up. It's kind of her way of saying, I don't have anything being built. There's no structure. There's no evidence of my life. So you going having a child with Hagar will build me up. Now, this was the allowable custom of the day. What would happen is if you could not have children, you would have Depends on the situation, but very frequently you'd have a, a servant or a slave or sometimes even a close relative who would have a child by your husband. She would give birth to the child and you would raise the child as your own. This was the legal practice of the day. It was not God's practice. It was not what God intended. And it's also a flagrant violation of what it will say later in Psalm 127. Do you remember this psalm? Unless the Lord builds the house... You labor in vain who build it. And it goes on to say that children are a heritage from the Lord, that that's all going to come from God. She says, we got to build our own house, Abram, because God's not doing it. You can see parallels here to Genesis chapter 3, when Eve gave Adam the fruit. Adam kind of stood there and didn't say anything. And Eve took and gave him the forbidden fruit. And there's very, very similar language here where Abram said nothing and Sarai took and gave him her servant. I'm going to say here very briefly and then move on from it. Husbands, you are the leaders of your home and you need to make sure you have enough fortitude to insist and disagree with your wife in matters of righteousness. Ladies, you know you have all kinds of influence with your husband. That's a good thing. It's the way God made you, right? But fellas, a lot of times we can be so strong in every area of life, but we're we just fall to pieces when our wife pushes. 
And in some things, it's not a big deal. But when it comes to matters of righteousness, you have a mandate and responsibility from God to stand up and say no. Adam should have said no to Eve. Abram should have said no to Sarai. And there are guys that can face anything except for the tears of a woman. Ladies, obviously no one here, some of y'all know that and will use that. And that's not good. That is a corruption of what God has done. But fellas, you need to be able in matters where it's this important to say no. If Abram had stood up and been the man that God called him to be and led his wife and led his house, this all would have been avoided. But he didn't. So we can't just go blaming Sarai, although she certainly has a ton of blame here. And you can't just go blaming Abram. It was both of them committing a sin together. They decided they're tired of waiting for God. And they're going to do to this young Egyptian girl what had happened to them when they were in Egypt. Do you remember that story? Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's household, waiting to become his bride She's already married. Not only that, she's the mother of promise. And Abram is sitting there helpless. His wife is sitting there helpless at the mercy of this man. And they're going to do the exact same thing to this girl. I need you to feel how awful this was. This is not just, oh man, I can't believe he did that. This was reprehensible. It was evil and it was wicked that they did this. And it's interesting, isn't it, that this was an Egyptian girl. This was probably some of the, the riches that they had acquired when they were in Egypt. They're still feeling the sting of that mistake. When you feel that God's promises have been delayed in your life, we become so clever in our justifications of doing the wrong thing in order to accomplish what God has said he'll do. This is obviously wrong. But they're going to come at it and say, well, God has prevented me. Oh, it sounds so spiritual. Obviously, God meant to do it a different way. Some have even speculated, and I want to be delicate, but it's important for the sake of the story, that Sarai had gone through menopause at this point, and it was biologically impossible for her to have children. So they're saying, well, obviously that's that. God's done. We're not doing this anymore. And this was legal. This was the common practice of the day. Hagar might not have even thought this was as weird as you're thinking of it right now. This was just part of the job, part of her lot in life. And this is one reason among a thousand why we don't let cultural norms dictate our behavior as God's people. You heard it ever since you were a kid. Well, everybody's doing it. That's not a good reason to do something. Well, nobody will look down on me. Well, you're not looking to please them. Who are you looking to please? Your father who's in heaven. Is this anything close to what God intended when he created Adam and Eve in the garden? No way. But we use spiritual language to accomplish what sound like spiritual goals, but in order to get there, we're going to say, well, we'll make a bridge out of sin and we'll get there. Never works, does it? Turn to Exodus chapter 32 with me. You all know this story. Exodus chapter 32. Interestingly, this also happened after the Lord had brought somebody out of Egypt. Exodus 32 they're at the Mount of Sinai. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days receiving the law from God. And the folks have been down at the bottom. The mountain is on fire. Do you remember this? Thunders and lightnings and smoke and fire and voices shouting out. And they're like, there's no way Moses has survived this. So what do we see in chapter 32? When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and bought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Every time I watch the old movie, The Ten Commandments, 
when you get to the end and they're out of the land of Egypt, you kind of start going, why are they going into this story? You know, it's like, well, they're out of there and this came later, but it is always so jarring to me when you see it depicted, how you come from this incredible scene of the sea being parted and the Pharaoh's armies being wiped out and now they're here making an idol. And you see this, they're using spiritual language. We're going to have a feast to the Lord. The Lord is going to lead us out of here. He brought us out of the land of Egypt. They still claimed they're worshiping the same God. If you ask them, they'd say, no, we haven't changed gods. We're still worshiping the Lord. We just have an image to look at because we can't see the Lord and we don't know where Moses is. We need a figurehead to follow. Oh, it all sounds so spiritual, but you know what it was? It was faithless. Because they had no faith that the God that had sent 10 plagues on Egypt and parted the Red Sea and given them water in the desert could sustain Moses for 40 days on the mountain. And it was also carnal, as evidenced by the fruit of their actions. No, we're not doing this out of our flesh. We're doing it out of practical concern for the people. But no, because the second they do it, they immediately get into all kinds of idolatry and sexual immorality and messed up sin. Perhaps Abram and Sarai had spiritual explanations. Back in chapter 15, verse 4, when Abram had said, Hey, how about Eliezer, my servant? He, he'll be my heir. I'll adopt a son. God said, No, in verse 4, your very own son shall be your heir. Literally, he says, The son of your own loins shall be your heir. And they look and say, Well, I mean, technically this will be your son. This technically falls in with what God said. This would not be inappropriate for us to do. We get slippery like that. I mean, you can sort of, if you squint and look at the scripture this way, then it, it kind of says that I can do whatever I want. Now, if they had asked, if they had come to the Lord and said, God, what about this? Okay, he said no to adoption, but we're old, Lord. What about surrogacy? Is that allowed? If they had asked, God would have said no. No, absolutely not. But they didn't, did they? Because they were not interested in God's will. At this point, it was not about God's promise. They were only thinking about themselves. They too were faithless. They had no faith that God, who had brought them through so much, could provide a miracle child for them. And they were carnal. They were just doing exactly what everybody else was doing. Exactly what they wanted. Let me say this to you. God does not need your help. Well, God helps those who help themselves. Benjamin Franklin said that. That's not in your Bible. That's Benjamin Franklin. He goes, well, it's, it's, it's true. Well, it's not in my Bible. My Bible tells me God doesn't need any help. Let me tell you a story about someone who tried to help God. 2 Samuel chapter 6. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Verses 6 and 7. This is when the Ark of the Covenant had been taken from the land of Israel and been sent to the land of the Philistines. And it's an amazing story. All the, all the false gods were put to shame before the ark. And the Philistines ended up saying, here's what we'll do. We'll put it on a cart. We'll turn the thing loose. And hopefully it goes back to Israel because I'm not touching that thing. Well, it comes in and David says, hey, let's bring the ark back. So they take the ark. They put it on a cart too. And it says in 2 Samuel 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him dead there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. David should have known that that is not how the law said that the ark of the covenant was to be carried. The Ark of the Covenant, if you read through the book of Exodus especially, there were rings that were made into the corners of it. And there were these very, very long poles that they would run through the, the rings and the priests would carry it. And there would even be those poles sticking out of the veil of the temple so that nobody had to go into the Holy of Holies to carry it. David chooses to do it the way the Philistines did it. Well, it worked for them. They didn't know any better. And if he had known or if he had done what he knew was right, Uzzah would never have been in a position to have to help in the first place. Oh, no, the Ark of the Covenant. I got it. And the Lord struck him dead for that. 
because they were treating the glorious presence of God, which is what the ark symbolized, as a common thing. Let's throw it in the back of the truck. No big deal. You sit out there and put your hand on it. And God's like, no way. I'm just trying to help, Lord. I don't need your help, saith the Lord. Now listen, God has made some remarkable promises to us, hasn't he? He's promised, as Peter says, inexpressible joy. Paul says, peace that passes all understanding. He's given us promises of the coming kingdom. We talked about that not long, that Jesus is going to return riding on a white horse and put his foot on the Mount of Olives and establish a kingdom of righteousness for a thousand years. God even makes personal promises to us. That's not scripture. That's just your relationship with God. Sometimes God gives you little promises. They are his responsibility to fulfill, not yours. Well, God told me this was going to happen, so I better go make it happen. Wrong. God told me it's going to happen, so Exodus 14, 13, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And and you might be like Abram and Sarai. Well, the situation is impossible. God can't. It's too late. God loves impossible situations. God loves to lead his people to places where there's no choice but for God to do a miracle. That's what happened in the Red Sea. When the Lord leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, got the wilderness on one side and the Red Sea on the other side, and there's nowhere for them to go, which is why they all get mad at Moses. Like, you led us here. What is wrong with you? There's nowhere for us to go. Were you planning to build boats? What was the plan? Here comes Pharaoh's army. And first of all, God sends his pillar of cloud and fire to block the approach of the chariots and the riders. And then God parts the Red Sea. Now, you couldn't plan that. You couldn't have been sitting in the logistical meeting and, okay, so everything's good. We're on our way out. We'll get to the Red Sea. And then I think what we'll do is we'll have God send a pillar of fire and he'll part the Red Sea and we'll just walk right across it. You don't plan things like that. God leads you into those situations. So your job is to remain faithful in what God has called you to do. And as Moses told the people on that day, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, it's just not my temperament to stand still. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Let your temperament be in obedience to the Lord. Your job is not to evaluate the situation according to the flesh to find out what must be done. In order to get from here to here, we're going to need this, this, and this. I'm going to get right on those things. That's not what God's told you to do. And and you'll even hear preachers that will tell you, if God's told you it's going to happen, you got to go get it. Not my God. The Lord says, you sit still, I'm going to bring it right to you. Well, that just seems foolish. No, it's faith. The fact that the situation looks hopeless is not a sign from the Lord that you have to take action. Can I say that again for you? The fact that the situation looks hopeless is not a sign from the Lord that you must take action. We love to set up those things with God. All right, Lord, I'll know when it gets to this point that it's time for me to step in. You know what God does? God lets it go past that point. Well, okay, but God gets here, then I'll know. I've got to make something happen. I've got to change where I'm going. God goes, no, keep going. To do that is a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith to say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to turn the church into basically a nightclub and get people in. Because that's the goal, to have a big church. So we're going to make it flashy. We're going to make it fun because it's our job to get them here. It's not your job. It is the Lord who adds to the church daily those who are being saved. It's a lack of faith for you to become a cutthroat businessman so that you can provide for your family. I love the Lord, but when you're in the game, you got to be in the game, man. This is the way it's played. i got to provide for my family. You're not the provider for your family. God is the provider for your family. It is a lack of faith to respond in cruelty to people who are cruel to you because you've got to stand up for yourself. What did Jesus say? If anyone strikes you on the one cheek, what do you do? Let him at the other one, too. Oh, that's like the first lesson we learned as kids, and we still haven't learned it, have we? He said, blessed are you when they persecute you and insult you and revile you without a cause for my name. Well, I can't let them walk all over me. That may be. But the Bible says, do not return reviling for reviling. It's a lack of faith. Let the Lord handle your situation. Let me step on a few toes. It can even, can be, Not every time, but can be a lack of faith to seek medicinal help for your spiritual problems. 
I'm speaking to this. Let me tell you my story why I say this. I grew up in a generation that was, has been, and is very heavily medicated for all kinds of things. I'm not talking about some article I read. I'm talking about people I could name to you who were put on medicine, drugs, by their parents or by some doctor to handle some issue that now they're 30, they're 35, and they're never going to get off that stuff. I've seen personalities totally changed. I've seen, let me tell you one story without naming a name. There was a girl whose father passed away, tragic situation, and immediately her family put her on antidepressants. Immediately. She is now dependent upon those things because she was not allowed to properly go through that. Uh, friends that are, I know that are now addicted to Ritalin and Adderall because they, rather than learn to control themselves, we're just going to shoot them up with medicine. I feel very strongly about this. And I will not say that this is always the case, but it is sometimes a lack of faith that God can't handle this. Don't worry, we don't need God, we'll just give them a pill. I've seen this, you guys, and it breaks my heart and it gets me angry, as you maybe can tell, because I, I see faces in my mind of people that were not allowed to endure what the Lord was putting them through. And people get stuck. And I know some of this is personal, but... Don't, don't get mad at me. I'm trying to give application, but you look at your life. Are you operating in your life out of faith or fear? How do you make decisions? Do you say, the Lord told me we ought to have Hagar have the baby? Or is that you're afraid that you're going to get old and you're not going to have that chance? Hebrews 10.36 says, you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Sometimes you say, I want to see the promises of God in my life. I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm ready to roll. And the writer to Hebrews says, you need patience. You need endurance. We're not a patient people, are we, Americans? We're not. We want it now. We want it immediately. Why does this microwave take so long to cook my popcorn? <laughs> You ever have one of those thoughts and you just feel terrible about yourself? Like, come on! It's like it was 90 seconds. And you're like, wow, I got really mad over 90 seconds. <laughs> but we need to learn not to respond to all the panics around us. We know that about ourselves. So we should be on guard against that. That the world is going to go like this, up and down and up and down, and every single thing is making them crazy. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to rest in his strength. How big is your God? I had a friend in college who's a pastor, and he used to say, how big is God? Say, big enough. If your God is too small to accomplish something that you could accomplish yourself, prepare to be humbled. Say, well, I could do that, but God won't do it. I'll just do it. Okay, that, that's a problem. So that means that your God is tiny in your mind and distant and far away and harsh towards you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And watch him be magnified. Well, let's get on to verse 4. Such a sad story. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now we see the fruit of a seed planted in the flesh. Jesus says all our actions bear fruit. They're like trees. And you can always tell what kind of action it was by the kind of fruit it bears. Doing things our way leads to pain leads to difficulty, and it leads to sin stacked upon sin stacked upon sin. And everybody involved wants to pick a certain point in the conflict and say, that's where it started, and that's where I was wronged, so I'm okay to be angry. Verse 3, it says that Hagar was made a wife of Abram. The word there is isha. Now, you would expect the Hebrew word pileges here, which means concubine, because that's essentially what she is, and that she is a sexual partner without being an official marriage. But as I said, this was a unique thing at the time, that at this time of history, there were these relationships where she's not just sexual release, which is essentially what a concubine was, but she's bearing children for him. So wife is actually the, a, a better understanding of her relationship to him. 
And it could have been that he took her as a second wife, because it certainly says that, she, that he did. But when he sends her away later, it seems not quite that way. So just an interesting little note there. But she conceives. And you get the sense that she did so almost immediately, don't you? Which proves definitively that the problem was not with Abram, but it was with Sarai. How do you think that made her feel? After all these years, now we know who's the problem. It's you, Sarai. If it wasn't for you, he would have had children a long time ago because he's doing just fine. So you've seen this, first of all, this grievous evil that Abram and Sarai commit by abusing this woman. And then in verse 4, Hagar is going to add to the problem. It says that she, the Hebrew is kalal, she despised Sarai. Later on in chapter 21, we're going to see Ishmael is going to do the same thing to Isaac when Isaac is born. She despised. She looked with contempt. You've got to imagine here what this relationship would have been like now between Sarai and Hagar. Oh, you can call her a servant all you want, but everybody knows what's up, especially her. It's very similar to what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm just going to read verse 2 and verse 6 to get the gist here, but there was a man named Elkanah, and it said, Elkanah had two wives. Always a great start to a story. <laughs> the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And verse 6 says, Penina used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Let me paint a picture for you. Elkanah and Hannah get married. They're young, they're happy, they're in love. They're waiting for children, waiting for children. Doesn't seem to be happening. Finally, I don't know, maybe they're middle-aged at this point. Elkanah says, I'm going to marry another woman because I want children. So he brings home a hot young thing named Penina. And she's going to live in the house with Hannah. And immediately Penina starts having children. And Penina makes life miserable for Hannah, rubbing it in her face at every opportunity. Because she knows, oh, I just, I just had two wives. That's kind of what people do. It was a, it's a status thing. Or it was, everybody knows why. She's the wife that could not have children. And it says that Elkanah favored her, but everybody knew what was up. I think it's a similar situation you've got here, where Sarai is despised by Hagar. And Hagar is maybe becoming arrogant to Sarai maybe taunting her and teasing her. Because you should, not, you should not get from this, especially since he uses the word isha, which means wife, that this was a one-time deal between Abram and Hagar. This would have been a continual, ongoing relationship between the two of them. The younger woman is brought in because of the older woman's so-called failure, and it becomes a point of contention. This is what I mean when I say something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay. There are a lot of people with multiple wives in Scripture. And there are sometimes where even God permits it. But there is no biblical record of a happy polygamous marriage. You, you search the Bible from cover to cover. There is no instance where somebody had two wives and that story ends happily. It doesn't say he had two wives and they all lived happily ever after. There's always trouble. I think this is a very similar to when Jesus gave the teaching on divorce. And they said, should we get divorced? And Jesus said, no, not if you can help it. And they said, well, Moses said we could get divorced. And God says, yeah, because of your hardness of heart. God would rather you have something legal than you just kicking your wife out into the streets. Similar here, the Lord sees that the world is broken and messed up with sin. And the Lord says, you know what? Sometimes it might be better for you just to take on both of them. But that's not God's ideal situation. And this is not even one of those situations. And it's, you know, I'm not going to go off on this, but... You're hearing more and more today where people are talking about how beautiful it is when couples have more than just one person in their sexual relationship, and they're calling it polyamory because they're not even getting married. It's the same old thing. It's the same old lie, and it's going to bring the same old problems. Now, it is not said in this story how complicit Hagar was in this plan. I tend to feel she had no choice here. But as I said, this was not like out of the blue, like, are you what? Are you crazy? This happened. You know, they probably knew people who had done this. And maybe Hagar even suggested it. Who knows? It doesn't say. But 
She added to the problem by rubbing it in Sarai's face, by despising it. You see what I mean? Sin upon sin, it's a big mess. When you try to solve your problems in the flesh instead of in the spirit, it just becomes a big mess. And then you bring it to people and say, here, help us. And you're like, I, what do you want me to do? This is a mess. Well, Sarai comes to Abram and she blames him. This is your fault. And as I said, remember, this was an ongoing relationship. So maybe she felt that something had changed between the two of them. She says, for the wrong that has been done to me. That word for wrong there, you know what that word is? Hamas. It means violence. And it's the name of a terror group that you're probably familiar with. It's the same word. She says, I'm going to bring in the Lord as a referee here. The Lord judge between me and you. As if Abram had, had something to do with this, you know, as if he was withholding from her. This is what later on Rachel is going to accuse Jacob of. Give me children or I'll die. He goes, am I God? I can't open your womb for you. So now not only is there this extra person in this relationship. Now the chosen couple of God is fighting. And again, rather than putting a stop to this, like a man, we've made mistakes, but that's the last mistake we're making. We're going to deal with this now. Abram shrugs it off. He shrugs off the mother of his child. Well, it wasn't his first wife. It, it, you, it doesn't matter. He took responsibility for this woman. He brought her into his bed. He brought her into his family. She's going to have his son. He's like, do whatever you want. It's none of my business. Shame on him. And then it says that Sarai dealt harshly with her. In that culture, there are a few ancient laws that we have written down. One of them was the Code of Hammurabi. You maybe you're familiar with that. It's a Babylonian law code. And they say that in this exact situation, that if there is a surrogate mother, a maidservant who has a child for her mistress, if she becomes boastful or arrogant, that she was to be branded and sent out to work in the field with the other slaves rather than being the handmaiden that worked in the house. There was another place, it was an Assyrian law that said if this happened, every time she did this, that their mouth could be scoured out with salt, which in the desert, you can imagine, is not a good thing. Now, it does not say that any of that happened here, but again, it's all legal. It's all according to the law. We're not breaking any laws. God told us to be a law-abiding citizens, and we're doing that. Job 31, verses 13 through 15. This is a verse that every culture that names the name of Jesus but has held and abused slaves has ignored. Job 31, 13 through 15. Job said, If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job is like, if there's somebody who is a servant or even what we would call a slave today in my house, and I treat them poorly, or they come to me and they have a complaint, and I ignore that, he says, I'm going to stand before God for that. Because Job understood our status is different, but that's the same kind of person that, that I am. God made us both. That's, that was in the scripture for years, but there are still around the world cultures today that ignore all that because it's convenient, like Sarai and Abram do here. This is why I say this is the greatest blot on Abram's record. It's horrible what he did. He allowed the abuse of a slave woman in his house who was also bearing his child all kinds of layers of messed up here. When we try to accomplish God's promises through our own carnal means, you might achieve them. He's going to have a kid, but it's going to be a shadow of what God wanted, and it's going to have so much baggage attached to it. God gives good gifts. God, God doesn't give you gifts with strings attached. But when we make a deal with the devil, so to speak, not literally, there's always problems Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You plant corn, corn's going to grow. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. Don't think, well, I can disobey exactly what God said and he's not going to do anything about it. Don't be deceived. If you're going to ignore God's commandments in order to accomplish something so-called spiritual, 
Well, we've got to do a wrong thing to accomplish a right thing. God doesn't permit that. The Bible is not full of stories of people given special permission by God to sin in order to accomplish what he wanted. It's full of stories of people feeling paralyzed because there is no righteous way to move forward. And then God steps in and does his thing on his own and he gets all the glory. If you do that, though, you're going to bring strife into your house and disgrace to God's name. When you let sin take residence in your life as a necessary expedient, you're going to find more and more excuses to use it. If you find one place in your life where you say, I'm going to sin here because I need to in order to get what I need. It's an important thing. I feel so bad, but I've got to do it. It doesn't stop there. It always moves on from there. You lie and cheat at work, you're going to be lying and cheating at home. You yell and abuse people and you get physical with folks, you're going to get physical in your house. You manipulate, you go behind backs, you use that passive aggressive thing. You're going to do it to people you love, and it's going to wreck your life. Sin does not stay put. Have you noticed that? You don't say, I sin, but, you know, over here in the drawer. Everybody's got a drawer, don't we? The junk drawer in the house. We're just full of old ketchup packets and stuff. And you think, I'm going to do that to sin. I'm going to shove it in the drawer, and it's over here. But it doesn't work that way. It never works that way. Don't be deceived. And don't you dare like Sarai did here, have the audacity to blame God for your situation when you sin to get what you want. Oh, I've seen this so many times. We say, I don't know why God brought this upon me. God didn't bring this upon you. You brought this upon you. It's amazing how much we like to pass the buck of responsibility. Sarai's like, God didn't let me have children, so let's have a child with Hagar. Now, there's conflict between Hagar. Oh, who could have predicted that, right? <laughs> and then she comes to Abram and says, this is your fault. Why is God doing this to us? God, why are you letting... Don't bring God in it. You didn't want him in there before. Don't try and drag him into it now. When you flout God's will and you flout his authority and you make a giant mess, you don't get to go, well, God is sovereign. You have sinned. That's what happened. That's the time for repentance, not rage. Sarai should have come to Abram weeping and said, what have we done? We've got to get Hagar in here. We've got to get on our knees and we've got to beg for God's forgiveness. But they didn't. It says she got angry and made things worse. What do you think Hagar thought of these people and their God now? She'd come from Egypt. She was an idolatress. Now, when she was in Abram's house, she's not worshiping any idols. And back then it was like, you know what? If I'm living here, I'm going to worship the gods that live here. But now she's like, these people are no different than where I came from. For all that talk about how scared she was in Pharaoh's house, did the exact same thing to me. What kind of God? This is, they're chosen of God. What kind of God would do this to me? Now listen, she would have been wrong to think that. You hear me? She would have been wrong to accuse God like that. But that does not make... Abraham and Sarai any less responsible for provoking those thoughts in her. Let me give you a crazy story, an example of this. In 1532, this is after several decades of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, there was a group of radical Anabaptists. Now, an Anabaptist was somebody who had the theology that if you had only been baptized in the Roman church, you needed to be baptized again. Later on, they would drop the name Anna, and now most of us are more or less on board with that theology, actually. But it was really radical back then. And these folks, not all of the Anabaptists, but these folks were crazy. There was one of them who apparently gave a prophecy that the Lord is coming back and Germany is going to be the new Jerusalem. So in 1532, a bunch of them took control of a city named Munster. And a man said, God has said, this is going to be Jerusalem, and this is where Jesus is going to reign. So they, they're surrounded, of course, by the army. They were under siege for years. They seized all property. They stole everything that every person in that town owned. And they said, it all belongs to the Lord. And anybody who opposed them was executed and beheaded. Eventually, they expelled everybody from the city who was not an Anabaptist. 
Their first leader died. Their second leader was a man named John of Leiden. And his first day as the leader of this town, he ran through the streets for three days naked, saying he was in a trance, receiving a vision from the Lord. He comes out of that and says, here's what we're going to do. Every man is allowed to marry as many women as he likes. We're going to have as many children as we can because that will hasten the return of Jesus Christ. And he'll take the city back. So he took 16 wives, taking them from their, their former husbands. Eventually, he says, I'm the king of righteousness. He says, I'm ruling with the 12 elders of Israel. And there were not many things at this point in history that could unite Catholics and Protestants. They united against these people. In 1535, they took back the city. They publicly tortured and executed the leaders. They put them in cages and hung them from the cathedral, and then they used hot tongs to pull all their flesh off. You can still go to the church in Munster today, and you can see the cages hanging there. In case you're, you know, ever on vacation. Now let me bring this back. Let me bring this back. This brought shame on that sect of Christians for a very long time. Maybe you've heard this growing up that, oh, the Baptists were persecuted and kicked out of Europe and we had to come here. This is why. Because to be an Anabaptist, even though they were not like these crazy people, you were in the same group. All these countries started declaring this movement illegal. And eventually they came to America and it was sorted out over time. It had to heal, but... It brought shame on their brothers and sisters and on the name of the Lord. And there was so much craziness happening during these days. It partially is what gave rise to the enlightenment and that radical atheism that took hold of the world. Oh, but it all sounded so spiritual. We're just excited for the coming of the Lord. We're just trying to hasten his coming. We're just trying to make sure that there's righteousness. It all sounded spiritual. But you can tell what's from the Lord and what's not by its fruit. If your efforts, listen to me now. If your efforts and your walk with the Lord are making you jaded and bitter and angry, you're not walking in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. So many harsh men, so many harsh men that say, I'm harsh because of Jesus. Because I'm radical. I believe the Bible. And we've got to be tough. And we've got to be strong. And we've got to be angry. No, no, no. Was that what Jesus was like? The man that stood and did not answer back when they were providing all kinds of lies against him and smacking him around and pulling his beard off and flailing the flesh off his back and forcing him to carry his cross. He gets up there and what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And sometimes we gather together and we're so angry. and We're so bitter. And we turn to the world and we say, it's them. It's their fault. And people look at that and they say, why would I want any part of that? If you've been living under the name of Jesus Christ, but in service to yourself, using the methods of Satan, you've got to repent at once before things get any worse. Hebrews 6.12 says it is those who have faith and patience who inherit the promises of God. Your flesh will take you to a dark place, to an inversion of God's will. You need to learn just to trust the Lord. Don't let yourself being in a dark place cause you to reach for something that's not from the Lord. We're going to do these last verses here to the end quickly because we're going to return to talking about Ishmael when we get to chapter 21. But this is a, this is a, a better way to end than where we've been going. Let's read verses 7 through 9. Hagar flees. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Hagar has run away and I, for one, can't blame her. But she's going to have an encounter with the Lord God. She makes her way, it says, to Shur. This is on the southern border of Canaan. It's actually a, a desert wilderness area that forms the border between Canaan and between Egypt. So it looks like she's going home. She's going back to Egypt. And as I said before, that's probably where she came from when they were there last time. But God stops her. And do you notice something? God is the only one in this story who calls her by her name. My servant, your servant. 
that woman, her, she, God goes, Hagar, God knows your name. He asks where she's going, and she tells him, and he gently commands her to return. Oh, this is a hard passage. This is a difficult passage for us to comprehend. You want me to go back? There are answers to these questions, but they're not easy for us to absorb. So let me just give you five that I think are explanations of why the Lord did this. Number one, this is throughout Scripture, authority is established by the Lord. God never addresses in Scripture the institution of slavery or servanthood as it's called here, but he did command his servants to make it bearable and even to make it a delight for those that were serving them. Did you know that? In the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it is, the Lord says, here's what you do if it's time for your servant to be released and they don't want to. They want to stay in your house forever. Now we hear that and we go, Who, what, what slave wants to stay in the house forever? The Lord's like, I want you to make it so good for them. They're like, I'd rather stay here. I love you so much. Sometimes we wish God addressed certain things, but it's, it's again, similar back to the adultery thing or the divorce thing because of your hardness of heart. So there was an authority structure here that God was honoring. Secondly, the child was not hers alone to take away, was it? Now, not only legally was he Sarai's, I'm not really addressing that, but Abram was his father. And the Lord knows how much kids need their fathers, doesn't he? Go back. You need to go back. It's not just your child to take away. It's his too. Number three, despite their sin, and there is nothing but sin coming from Sarai and Abram here, they had been chosen by God, and God was honoring his decision. And the Lord's plan for them and for Hagar was longer than just this episode. I'm, I'm glad the Lord doesn't just judge me on the worst moments in my life. I'll tell you what. Fourth, the Lord had every intention to bless her for her humility. We're going to read this in just a second. God is saying, it will be better for you to return and share in those blessings than it would be to flee and go home. Sometimes God tells you, I want you to stay in that hard situation. And fifth, she had the opportunity to show grace in this situation. She had the opportunity to go home and bring about harmony in this family again, which would be for Sarai's good and it'd be for hers. The Lord goes, if you go back now, you're going to be messed up with bitterness and hatred for the whole rest of your life. And you're going to raise a child in bitterness and hatred. Or you can go back and you can endure and you can be the one to show grace. This is similar to what Peter told bondservants in 1 Peter 2.18. He said, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. He says, you set the example. You set the tone. Have mercy on your unjust master. That's radical stuff, isn't it? I hardly feel comfortable talking about it, to be honest with you. Reminds me of Onesimus in the book of Philemon. He had ran away from his master, Philemon, who was a Christian. Onesimus became a Christian through the ministry of Paul, and Paul sent Onesimus back. And you go, Paul, why'd you do that? And Paul writes that letter to Philemon, and he says, he's your brother now, so I don't want to hear you treating him like he's less than a brother. And Paul kind of does one of those wink, wink, nudge, nudge, send him back and set him free. But he says, you guys, I, I don't want you to be living the rest of your life with this broken, fractured relationship between the two of you. Go fix it. And you know what's amazing? It is very hard for us to grasp, and I still don't know if I fully comprehend it. God does not view a person's station and situation in life as more important than the state of their heart. We know that because the Lord himself is triune, isn't he? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one, in essence, we believe. They are the same quality. There's no difference between the nature of the Father or the Son or the Spirit, but their role and the, the task that they carry out and the authority, there's a structure there. And it teaches us that don't worry so much about where you are in the structure because God looks at your heart like we read about Job. Job's like, yeah, I'm the master and he's the servant, but God made us both. And God is going to come after me if I treat him poorly. God cares for the oppressed. You know what else, though? This is the hardest thing to hear. God cares for the oppressor, too. God called Simon the Zealot. Let's get Rome. Let's go back. Let's take back our country. And then God picks who? The tax collector. What? He's a collaborator, Lord. He's robbed us. He's, he's oppressing our people. And God goes, I know. I want you to come together. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And Proverbs 17, 2 says, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. 
and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. I am so glad when I read passages like this that we live in a time where polygamy is illegal and frowned upon, when nobody is talking about getting their servant to sleep with their husband in order to have a child, and that we don't add this, this mess of slavery into this whole thing. So we're trying to solve this problem, and it's like every time we try to solve it, there's another layer of sin underneath it. But we've got our own issues. So we can be grateful, but we've also got to make sure that we're paying attention to what's going on around us and where we might have blinders up and can't see where we're walking in sin. And if I could apply this to us all, God sent Hagar back to go and endure unjust treatment at Sarai's hands. We're called to endure one another in the church in order to maintain the bond of peace. Paul said we should be eager, zealous, passionate to maintain the bond of peace in the church. Some of you have been hurt by somebody in a church who named the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've even been abused as Hagar was. But do you know what the Lord says to us in those situations? God wants to patch us up, but he also says, you got to go back and make peace. You can't, that's not fair to tell me to do that. The Lord's like, it is your job. Blessed are the peacemakers. But I'm the one who was hurt, Lord. And the Lord says, what did I say when I was hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Jesus said, you must forgive. And if you do not forgive as you have been forgiven, then I'm not going to forgive you either. There are so many people that are holding on to bitterness against others in the church for legitimate reasons. I don't forget the color of the carpet kind of division. I'm talking about this serious stuff. You're holding on to bitterness and you feel justified because you were in the right and you were hurt. The Lord is saying, you need to let that go. You need to forgive them because it turns into a root of bitterness. And after a few years, you can't get it out anymore. And you don't know any other way to deal with people. It takes repentance on the part of those who did wrong, but it also takes willingness to forgive from the person who has been wronged. Well, I'll forgive them when they repent. That's not how it works. Did Jesus wait for that? said, no, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've got to live out that same thing. It's, it's revolution from the bottom up. We're not waiting for the folks in power. So many times we do that. Y'all got to fix this. Jesus is like, don't wait for them. You start from the bottom. You start showing my love. And you, through your love and your forgiveness to one another, that's what changes the world, isn't it? And until we're willing to do that, until we're willing to forgive and ready to forgive, there's going to be no unity in God's church. I could preach just that, but we better go quickly. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. I should mention that this chapter, verse 7, is the first time we see the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Bible. Don't have time to get into that. But he says, the name of your son will be Ishmael. Literally in Hebrew, this is Yishmael with a Y. A lot of... Hebrew names, we've dropped the Y's from the beginning. I'm not sure why we did that. Even Israel has a Y at the beginning of it. Isaac has a Y, and so does Yishmael. It means God has heard, because God listened to her affliction. And he reveals the character of her son and of his descendants. We're going to get into this a lot more later, but let's mention it now. He says he'll be a wild donkey of a man. It implies stubbornness. It implies waywardness. It implies solitude, the kind of person you can't have nice things around. And he says he'll be pugnacious. It's him against everybody and everybody against him. A thorn in the flesh of the world. And Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. And I think we've found that the Lord's prophecy is true. We see a lot of that. There's an Islamic saying, me against my brother, my brother and I against my cousin, my cousin and I against the stranger. Isn't that exactly what the Lord said here? A, a violent and angry people that don't really fit in with everybody else. That's what the Lord prophesied. That's what your sin produces. And you know, one of the appeals of Islam to the Arabic people is they say, you are the true children of Abraham. You deserve all those promises. You're the descendants of Ishmael. He was Abram's true firstborn. 
And we're going to get into all the prophecies and all the other stuff that gets into it in chapter 21. But the Lord said, I'm going to bless Ishmael because he's Abram's son. And I promised I'd bless Abram. And also out of mercy and pity for Hagar. He says, the only thing you're getting out of this deal is a baby boy. And I'm going to make that boy a world beater. He's going to have a multitude of descendants. And he's going to be a great nation. And everyone's going to know his name. Later on, we're going to see Joseph will be sold to a caravan of Ishmaelites. And where are they going to take him? Egypt. You can see the irony here. The conflict with Egypt is already stirring between Abram and between his descendants in Egypt. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For he said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, for it lies between Kadesh and Bered. So she offers worship to the Lord. Maybe this is the first time she's ever worshiped God on her own and not because she had to. She calls him El Roy. Actually, it would be El Rai, how you pronounce that. The God who sees. And I wish I could get into this, but we're over our time here. When she says, truly here, I've seen him who looks after me. If you want to get really wooden and literal, what it says is, have I also here seen after the one who sees me? That word after, it it refers to the back parts. Remember in Exodus 33 when uh, Moses said to God, let me see your glory. And God says, I'll let you see my back parts, my after. It's the same idea here. I've, I've caught a glimpse of God and he saw me. That's the thing that gets her the most excited. Not only did I see a little bit of God, God saw me. And then she calls the name of the well, Be'er Lahairoi, which was between Kadesh and Bered. We do not know where that is today. But that's who God is. God is the one who sees. And depending on if you're, how you've been acting, that's either comforting or terrifying for you. 1 Peter 3.12 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you've been like Sarai and Abram, and you've hurt, and you've broken people around you, and you've driven them away from the Lord, God sees that, and you ought to tremble. But if you're like Hagar, and I think we were on both teams here, everybody's been Hagar, and everybody's been Sarai and Abram in this story, and you've been hurt, and you've been broken by people who should have loved you well, know that God sees that too, and that God is faithful, and he's compassionate. God understands every aspect of every heart and every situation, and he is a righteous judge. So don't go questioning God when you don't understand what's going on. The only thing that is certain when we don't know what's going on is that God does, right? (laughs) Verse 15 through 16, wrapping it up. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. She returns. Ishmael is born to Abram. Seems like the conflict abated here, but it's not over. The situation is much more sticky now, and it's only going to get worse. And I've said many times, don't assume that the mess you made was the will of God. Sometimes you still have to carry the consequences, but you've got to make it right and muddle through the best you can. The Lord will help you. Bringing it back to what we said at the very beginning, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? God started your relationship off with him, with his son Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead and sending his Holy Spirit to regenerate your soul. What are you going to add to that? I got to finish it. No, you don't. It is a terrible temptation to try to fulfill God's promises through our own carnal methods. You don't need a surrogate mother for the child God promised you. You don't need a golden calf to know that God is with you. You don't need to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims so that Jesus can return. You don't need slaves to work your field so that you can build a city on the hill for the world. You don't need a circus act to build God's church. You don't need a revolution to get God's government on the throne. And you don't need lies and manipulation to make sure your family stays intact. Well, that's so passive. Yes, now you're getting it. You are the passive one. God is the active one. So much of this comes from us thinking just like the world, you guys. You've got to refuse. You've got to determine for the rest of your life, I'm going to stop looking at my life through the lens of flesh and blood. What I see on TV, what I see in my neighborhood, what I see at the store, that's not flesh and blood. If you think that way, you're only going to come up with solutions in flesh and blood. Or you're going to show up to God telling him what he's got to do. 
God is real. God sees. Hagar got that even when Abraham didn't. He'll do it on his timetable, not yours. So listen, whatever you're facing today, whatever promise of God you're not seeing right now, you need to stand still and see his salvation. Hold still. You ever get a, a kid that's upset and you want to try and fix everything and you want to try and explain it to them, but they're just wiggling and they can't stop and they're trying to throw themselves out of your arms? First thing, hold still. We're like that with God. No, God, it's too bad. You know, you can get a splinter in their hand. You try to take the splinter out. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. It's so bad. Like, just hold still. Let me take care of it. Striving does not produce the work of God. Rest in his love. Rest in his sovereignty. Rest in his justice. Rest in his word. If God said it, he's going to do it. Amen. The Lord is the one who builds the house, not you. It's not your house to build. It's his house. All you've got to do is wait. And maybe some of you, that's not what you wanted to hear tonight. You wanted to hear a solution. The solution is stand still and see the salvation of the Lord.